Uh, we just want to put out a disclaimer that while none of us here are black, we are very aware that we're engaging with an anti-racist text and we are doing our best to engage with these ideas and we hope you recognize that in good faith. But if there is an issue or something you want to clarify with us, then we definitely um, welcome being held accountable. Uh, so we invite you to reach out to us if there's anything that we should correct or address in what we discussed today. Hunger has no principles. Hey, look, it's, hey, a, look, butterfly. it's a butterfly. It's a butterfly. Reading Rainbow. Welcome, listeners, to Reading Rainbow. Laura, what are we? We are a podcast that um, focuses on reading books that you're supposed to read in high school or middle school or whatever school, and then we analyze them, and we try to figure out why we had to read them and what is it worth it, and any other questions we think of at any time. <laughs> Amen. And who are you over there silently in the corner waiting? Oh, I'm, uh, I'm Chadwick. Hello! Hi! <laughs> Hi, I'm Chadwick Crawford, yes. Ooh, first oh, name, nice. last name, Doxin yourself. Just Docks myself up. <laughs> um, so Chadwick, this month is my guest because I'm adding the flavor this time. Yeah. Uh, we met back when we worked for the same nonprofit, back when I was also an educator, um, and we became good buddies. We uh, we tutored the youth together. and then We made we... a difference. Amen. Uh, yeah, and then we've been friends ever since. Yeah, yeah. And I have gone on to continue working in secondary education, uh, first in a paraprofessional capacity, and now I'm a substitute teacher, and I am doing a graduate program with uh, teacher certification at the University of Iowa for secondary English, secondary English education. English, great. I have a question, um, and uh, this is one of those, like, Oh, I've heard it, and I've used it myself for so long, but I never know what it means, and at this point I think I'm too afraid to ask. What does para-something mean? Like paralegal, paraprofessional? Because to me, I immediately associate the word paraplegic, and I'm just like, I don't understand how any of those meet. I think it's like kind of like halfway professional or, you know, um, outside but related to professional practice. Like, um like when we think of paratext is like the page numbers and the chapter headings in a book, not the actual body of the text. Um, oh, we do I didn't even I didn't know, know that, that <laughs> but we're learning. We're getting educated. Hey, you're educating us. Hooray. Para- paratext <laughs> is an interesting, interesting area of uh, literary studies. Um, oh, and a paraprofessional is somebody who is not a qualified professional, but um, supports or otherwise um, assists the produ- performance of professional activities, I guess. So a para-educator is somebody who is a classroom aide, essentially. Okay. Um, but you are most often working in special ed, um, so with specialized attention to special needs students. Got um, it. Wow, real salt of the earth. I always feel like mm-hmm. I never know if that's a compliment or not. I always think people, I think it's always supposed to be a compliment, but then I feel like a lot of times it just comes off as a backhanded compliment. Yeah, I mean, I think it can definitely be on the snarky end of things. Well, mine um, was not intended to be snarky, but you know what? I no, no, it. but no, you don't have to retract it. I think it's in its uh, original sense, it's supposed to mean, you know, good common folks. Yeah, 
that in itself sounds like a backhanded compliment. But I do understand what you mean. Like, <laughs> it is supposed to just be like, it doesn't matter. I mean, we don't need to get into that. No, but, no, you know what? But the thing is, I am a big old weirdo, and I don't know that I am salt of the earth exactly. Um, I mean, but that's why we're friends, to be I'm, honest. Maybe I'm like pink salt or something. Oh, yeah, snap. The fancy stuff mm-hmm. that you find at the TJ Maxx. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sea salt because um I like sea creatures. And I'm um I think I'm MSG because everyone thinks that at least the health community has dubbed it like horrible, but you know what? It ain't so bad. Yeah. Anyways, um so do you I guess okay, another question I have. So do you you intend to move on to the next level? to become a professional away from the para. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm doing a master's right now. It's a, it's a, the program is an MAT, which is, uh, I would describe it as kind of like a career change master's. So people who didn't get an education, um, mm. bachelor's, yeah. who want teacher's training, but they wanted at the gra- mm. a, a graduate degree can get an MAT. So it has teacher certification kind of bundled into the whole pro- process. So I feel like then, our podcast is kind of your wheelhouse. Secondary English mm-hmm. literature. We're talking about books. And yeah, you for have sure. chosen. What book did you choose? And kind of give us a reason why. Well, um, No Name in the Street by James Baldwin was what I chose to read. And um, I played fast and loose with your concept um, of the podcast. Because no there's no rules. But I mean, mostly you guys have focused on stuff that you or the guests actually did have to grapple with in high school mm-hmm. um and i never had to read any baldwin in high school um mm-hmm. and i took a i'm taking a seminar this semester and one of the things we read was a book called uh, begin again by eddie glaude jr which is kind of um i would describe it as a record like a like an intellectual's record of a deep dive into a single author in this case james mm-hmm. baldwin mm-hmm. um kind of looking at his work through the lens of um, contemporary American politics and race relationships. Um, and as I'm reading it, I'm reading all these excerpts. It's just, you know, woven through with Baldwin's voice. Yeah. And um, I had watched uh, I Am Not Your Negro last year, uh, mm-hmm. the documentary about Baldwin, um, which touches on a lot of the same content that's in No Name in the Street. Um, and I thought to myself that this, he's one of the most anthologized uh, black voices in most American literature, um, Mm. sort of, I don't know, canon. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. But I had never been taught him. And as I'm reading this voice, it's it's a singular um, expression. He has some of the most beautiful prose written, uh, I think, by an American. And so I was like, well, you know, I should have read this. So I'm going to go and read it. And... Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. I, 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 I love this book. And I, with some reservations um, about, you know, keeping my job and stuff, this is definitely a book I think should be taught mm-hmm. in, um, in high school curriculum. Yeah. Um, and I, because I think it's very, it has, it does double duty as being a, an important work by um, a canonical American author. So giving you that uh, history juice because that's mm. what you need to do to mm-hmm. justify, you know, in some some senses that you're teaching it's a true, certain yeah. book. And also, it's just so relevant. It's so sad mm-hmm. how relevant it continues to be. Mm-hmm. But um, this book 
could have been written, you know, this year. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners, watch out, because Professor Chadwick's coming to town. You might as well get a head start now. Start reading this book, because you're going to have to already read it in class, all right? Sorry, guys. It's yeah. inevitable. This is a little peek into the future. Mm-hmm. Get with the program. Yeah. I did not have to read this in any school ever, but Laura, did you have to read this in school? Um, never, ever. I will also say, um, because I consider myself a connoisseur of audiobooks, there, you know, mm-hmm. some audiobooks are, some books are great to listen to for audio, and some are not. I would say, listen, uh, as Chadwick said, beautiful prose that you yeah. should read with your eyes. You're going to take in a lot more versus... I mean, to a certain extent, I guess you do get the benefit of, like, hearing the cadence of mm-hmm. a reader. But uh, because yeah. it is, there's not a very direct through line in terms of narrative. It's kind of like talking about something which leads to something else. And all the while, mm-hmm. there is, like, following a certain timeline. But a lot of it is, I don't want to say stream of consciousness, but it's just, like, it jumps around a lot, covering mm-hmm. a lot of topics. Yeah, you yeah. know, that's something that Glaude makes a lot of in his book, um, mm. the disjointed narrative of yeah. No Name in the Streets. He writes that it is the way that the memory of a traumatic experience works. Mm. You know, like the fragmented um, nature, the fragmented timeline of this book is like how we piece together terrible things that happen to us and as the topic of the book is almost exclusively terrible things yeah um it kind of makes sense so i mean i don't think that's the only way of looking i also i mean i think that we can also look at comparisons to i mean it's very obvious but like comparisons to jazz people make a lot of that about baldwin's prose you know this sort of like where one idea just kind of resolves into the next idea, almost improvisationally. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of like sitting and sitting down and talking maybe to somebody who's had too many cups of coffee mm-hmm. and they're telling you something and then they kind of just segue into the next and into the next. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, that is me. Yeah. I like, yeah. But I mean, it's, I like beauti- that analogy. it's beautifully done. It doesn't feel improvised in the sense of mm-hmm. like, you know, I just made this up on the spot. Yeah. But it feels like, somebody who allowed their mind to constructively wander in composition. Um, I'm going to just start off with a little fun, quick, fun fact about James Baldwin. I'm going to go ahead and cite my source because I saw this on, uh, I subscribed to the Mental Floss newsletter that you get like throughout the week. Wow. I know. Um, And one of them was an article titled Five Fascinating Facts About James Baldwin. And one of them is James Baldwin played a part in getting Maya Angelou's first novel published. And I bring this up Mm. just because we, I think sometime on season one, uh, read uh, Maya Angelou. So it says, James Baldwin and Maya Angelou shared a special relationship. One night, Baldwin brought Angelou to a party at the New York City home of Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer. At some point in the evening, many of the guests began sharing stories of their childhood and Judy was particularly moved by Angelou's tale. So that's just a little fun tit-tat to know. But, Laura, why don't you tell us a little bit more, something fun about the book? Oh, uh, as an aside, I have a friend in New York City who's a a jobbing actor. And he found out um, a month or so ago 
his neighbor found out that they live in one of Maya Angelou's old apartments. Oh my oh. gosh. Listen, when you okay. were telling that story, I was like, my mind was like, I could go here, here, here. And one of them, it did cross my mind. I'm like, lived in the same house or like former house of Maya Angelou. That's crazy. Okay. So my book fact. Oh my gosh. Yes. I'm so sorry. Go. Yes. It's okay. Um, so my book fact. So James Baldwin, he was a prolific writer and he had works published through the 50s to the 80s. So Go Tell on the Mountain was his first novel published in uh, 1953. But uh, No Name in the Street was published in 1972. Uh, And according to Wikipedia, it is called a book-length essay. And I would say that's pretty accurate. And the writings from the 70s and on have not gotten really as much attention, even though some of those are pretty famous, like If Beale Street Could Talk. So that is kind of the book. That's the book fact, is the whole overarching history of his writing. He's a machine, I guess. He was a machine. He was very productive. I mean, I think that it's a really interesting to talk about the idea that his books in the 60s were more palatable to Mm -hmm. white America than Mm. his um, post-civil rights, uh, his post-Malcolm and Martin and Medgar um, writing. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. there was a bit more hope in, hope for reform, I think, in what he wrote before. Sure, yeah. and I should, of course, add that I am not a Baldwin scholar. Um, mm-hmm. I have read plenty of excerpts, thanks to Eddie Glaude Jr., um, about these books. Um, but No Name in the Street is my first, but not yeah. my last of his books that I will But read. I think you do bring up a good point, Chadwick, of the con- like contextualizing the text of mm-hmm. uh, during the time and the fact that the publishing industry then, and kind of still today, although, of course, we're trying to make progress, is white America, and so when you're writing, although you mm-hmm. have your own point of view, you still have to make it palatable. Like, he wasn't his own publishing press. He has to... Mm-hmm. you got to sell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, but for the listeners, let's kind of get into summarize. Like, I'll read the Goodreads blurb. We'll kind of summarize it before we really get into the meat of the text. No Name in the Street by James Baldwin. This stunningly personal document and extraordinary history of the turbulent 60s and early 70s displays James Baldwin's fury and despair more deeply than any of his works, any of his other works. In vivid detail, he remembers the Harlem childhood that shaped his early consciousness, the later events that scored his heart with pain, the murders of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, his sojourns in Europe and in Hollywood, and his return to the American South to confront a violent America face-to-face. End blurb. Yeah, I mean... Mm. I, that, it's pretty that, succinct. That, co- that covers most of it. I mean, I think that we should also note the parts that happen in Turkey. Mm. Um, I mean, that's another location that's important because I think Turkey is a place where he found himself truly outside and um, truly with a, a space for... Um, seeing America differently. And we should also point out, I think, that this is a very discourse, discursive book. You know, it, like, all, all of these things don't happen in any particular order. They, mm. they weave back and forth through time, um, in and out, and return uh, again. Yeah. Man, it's like I don't even need to come with a summary these days. And yet, Laura, and yet, hit us with and that And yet, summary. I still will. Yeah. I, it's kind of hard to summarize this, buddy. Um, as I mentioned before, it's kind of one long personal essay, sort of stream of consciousness, but it's a bit more intentional than that. He brings up stories from his childhood, um, living with his siblings and father, 
He spends his time in France and um, traveling internationally as well. Uh, he talks about the first time he really spent time in the south of the United States, um, his time living in Hollywood. And um, a big point, I think, of the maybe plot, we could say, is um, the arrest of his friend William uh, Tony Maynard in Germany and having um, difficulties helping his friend out in that position. Uh, there are several more things discussed, um, but yeah, it's very largely... Um, would you say like now I, I want to I like want to say theoretical, but it's a bit more like concrete than that. You know, it's um, I would say that this is probably a foundational text of what people would describe as Afro pessimism. Mm, um, I have not heard that term. Yeah, me neither. Um, I think um, because it kind of it interrupts the narrative of um, civil rights in America as a solved or solvable problem. Mm hmm. His position is that nice liberal white people are not going to be the change that needs to happen. The change yeah. is going to come, but it's not going mm -hmm. to it's not going to come because white people are nice. Chadwick, I have a question for you. I mean, this is open to the entire group, but I think you bring up a point of like this isn't a book where it's like here's the solution here's the problem here's the solution it's very concrete it's very defined i think there are certain audiences that are quote unquote like looking for that and are looking for like oh you've laid out the problem now what is what's the next step they're looking for some call to action or something but do you think there is like some sort of call to action there is a like moving forward thing or do you think it's more like a look at the past, a, a summer, summarization and contextualization of, like, events. Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of future in this book. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just that the future is not reformist. It's not, we're going to elect politicians who are going to solve this. We're going to make laws that are going to solve this. I mean, what does he say? Like, on the last couple pages of the book, um... On both continents, the white and the dark gods met in combat. It is on the outcome of this combat that the future of both continents depends. And then I, the, the last sentence in the book, I think black people have always felt this about America and Americans, and have always seen spinning above the thoughtless American head, the shape of the wrath to come. I think that there's definitely a future. Yeah. There's, de there's definitely something that's coming. And I think that, in a sense, Baldwin has a boundless faith and love in blackness and black people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that in this book, he feels that their future is, is without hope. I okay. think that he does very much feel that that future is not going to happen in America as he knew it or as we know it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's more like something is going to change. There is, and just be ready for that. Yeah. And I mean, I would, I would say that without, without explicitly saying it because he doesn't he takes an internationalist stance especially where we we saw him discuss like the algerians in paris mm -hmm. um there but this is a this is a book that where revolution and violent revolution is definitely subtextual throughout the whole thing mm -hmm. um i don't know if he's 100 percent committed to the idea of like insurrection in america mm -hmm. But I think that he's pretty sure that there's going to be more broken windows before this is over. Yeah, I like for me. Yeah, this text was dense. I listened to it first just through audio, and then I did actually buy the ebook because I was like, I can't do, I cannot just do it with audio. And I'm glad I did because there's a lot of stuff I missed. So he talks about his experiences and relationships with like 
figures like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And obviously these aren't the only two members of the you know, civil rights movement, but um, they are often very prevalent in um, history lessons and curriculums today. So we kind of think of them as like giants and like very idolized figures. I guess, how did you read his relationship with them? Like, how did you, yeah, I guess, how did you process that? I mean, it's just amazing, you know, because mm-hmm. he was somebody, I don't think he set out to become a spokesman for Black America, Yeah, but he had that opportunity and he didn't shy away from it. And he doesn't ever claim that he is the authority on Black America, mm-hmm. but he was cognizant of the responsibility that he bore. I think he always kind of portrays himself in this book as a witness more than, you know, mm. he marches and he goes to the South. And I think that both his relationship with King and with Malcolm X, you know, they both kind of treated him as like someone who was slightly outside, it seems. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who, mm-hmm. was, who, who, was, who was recording, who was witnessing. I'm not saying that he wasn't part of the struggle, but I mean, his role in the struggle was as, as, a, as a writer, as a poet, mm-hmm. you know as somebody to bear witness. It's very humanizing in a way that I don't think we get. And that's, I, th- I think, another reason why I think this would be a really powerful text in a secondary school setting mm-hmm. is because we are taught these figures as postage stamps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we're taught these figures as, you know, Martin Luther King um, made ni- made people get along. You mm-hmm. know, Malcolm X was a little grumpier, maybe. And this gives us more complex, more mm-hmm. rich portrayals. I think to a certain extent, because Baldwin, whether intentionally or not, like plays as witness and you know a documenter, I think it allows him to fluidly mix with all these people because I think like one of the parts I remember that was impactful to me is as he is interacting with these like big historical figures that it, it at, at this time we see as like oh they were of the past they were this figure they did this mm-hmm. this and this perfectly summarized and packaged um he's got like a story of first meeting malcolm x and i think malcolm x is sitting in on one of his lectures and baldwin is yeah. like skeptical of him and he's like it really gives a representation of the fluid dynamic like uh, the changing dynamics in the relationship that happen in communities and especially during a time of not uprising but like when there are plans for social change like it's not fluid mm-hmm. it's not just like and then all the black people got together stood behind martin luther king jr and did the did the thing it's yeah there is complexity within this community. I loved this. I loved when he was talking about Malcolm X and a debate. It was clear he had a lot of respect for Malcolm X because he was saying like, oh, he brought up all these arguments and he left loopholes dangling. But if they went for the loopholes, he like had another county argument ready. I thought that was just like a really nice, um, exciting scene. Mm-hmm. This is a bit more of a, a takeaway, but I think this is part of the value of these like primary sources from the civil rights movement, seeing what these people who were there thought and felt and how they related to one another. Yeah, and I think this is something I do want to get away, uh, uh, I want to touch on more in intended takeaways and judgments. Yeah. But I think what it also really makes me think of is this idea of global citizenship. There is a debate now about whether it is possible to be a global citizen, and I think Mm -hmm. what gets glossed over, maybe because of the people kind of trying to lead this discourse, is the intersectionality that affects how you engage with the world and, like... Baldwin is exploring 
blackness not only in America, uh, well, not even like in other countries, but also within America, like the American South. And he's presenting a more holistic picture of rather than just like in this one place, what is it like? Mm-hmm. Like when he talks about being in Paris and like, I don't know if the right word is colorism, but he talks about how Algerians are treated differently than he is. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I wouldn't say it's colorism. I mean, he's American and as mm-hmm. such, you know, and, and a famous American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think at the time, French people, you know, they have always loved um, American blacks. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, especially American black celebrities. Yeah. You know. But I mean, you know, jazz, Josephine Baker, Sidney Bechet, like a lot of performers from America and um, intellectuals were able to kind of move outside of racism a little bit. Yeah. And it mm-hmm. it, it wasn't, I, I mean, as we read in the sections on Paris, he didn't feel like he was accepted or like he became, you know, one with the French or whatever. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it was a little bit outside of the, the the racist condition that he was he, he lives in in America yeah um, but Algerians who both rejected Frenchness and also were subalterns within France it, it was a very different situation I mean you know how many Algerians were murdered in the 1960s? Um, by French police, the numbers, we don't have numbers on them. So this is obviously a piece of literature, but it was um, from a very specific time period. And so I wanted to know um, what value would it have being taught in like an English um, literature curriculum in high school, secondary school, versus the the history curriculum? Oh, sure. Which department, I guess, should teach this or like what... Um, yeah, how what? would it differ? Like, how would the content change? Right. I think in most high school curriculums, you just don't read that much. You know, you don't read that many books. You're kind of tied to your textbook, and not that that's like a great situation, but it is the you know we live on planet Earth at this moment, and this is how things are. Um, you might get like excerpts and you know brief secondary texts, mm-hmm. and hopefully a lot of them. You know, if your teacher's any good. But I just don't think that most courses are, are, are situated where you could do that. I mm. feel like also, while this works as a corrective or corollary to like the narrative of the civil rights movement that we're most often taught, I think, in secondary situations, I think a lot of, a lot of the book is interesting to speak of in, in more literary terms. I mean, to look at the structure of the narrative, the timeline of the narrative, to pick out the ideas of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, again, in social studies classes, we, they ended up being potted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's Voltaire's idea about um, yeah. you know, democracy. Look, here's what modernism is in three sentences. Mm-hmm. You know, so we tend to look at like surveys of American history or world history or whatever, mm-hmm. and we get, if we're gonna speak about intellectual currents, it's it's very surface and and it's very much mm-hmm. teaching to the test I think in most situations. Well, and here I will also say that I think one of my focuses as a as a teacher, the re- whole reason that I think it's important to teach language, um, is, you know, sure we need to be able to write an email or whatever, but like teaching students criticality and reasoning mm-hmm. is really important. And I think teaching a 
a very critical text like this, mm -hmm. you know, would be of great assistance to a lot of students. Like, like kids don't think about what whiteness means, mm -hmm. you know, and the way that Baldwin frames it as delusion and as dependent upon oppression, you know, I mean, that's just, this is tough stuff. This is chewy stuff. And I think that we don't need to hide this kind of thing from, from kids. They are ready mm -hmm. for it. And, you know, I mean, just consider Tumblr. I mean, mm -hmm. like, what what happens when kids get a little bit of, like, critical, like, thinking under their, their belts and, like, go off, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I think that they're ready and they're interested and let's do it. Yeah. At what age do you think it's appropriate to, like, you know, teach race in schools? And whoever said it was just like, you know, like, your kids already know about it. They're already engaging with it every day just mm -hmm. subconsciously. So, you know, why not just address it directly always yeah. it is always appropriate i mean i think honestly i think it's more for the one brief like but rather chewy piece of um sexual content yeah that would probably make this book difficult to teach in a lot of districts yeah, yeah. um i mean it's not even it's not a very important scene but it's there um mm -hmm. and he uses you know the word cock yeah. So, like, mm -hmm. a lot of parents would probably do a lot of, a, a lot of, there would be a lot of clutched pearls. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and more, more so than any of, like, the scenes of racial violence or, mm -hmm. you know, the intense discussion of inequality. Like, that's yeah. the one that I think would probably, you know, get led People to would, the, yeah, like, bristle some feathers. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I want to point out that I think it's interesting you mentioned that um, a lot of this... The question is text is what is whiteness and what does that mean and to discuss that um it would be like that would be kind of the question to discuss in classrooms um i think that's interesting because most of the time i think some of the fear people have is that um if you start discussing like critical race theory or things about like gender and sexuality then the question becomes like oh do gay people deserve this or like deserve these rights and and that becomes an issue because then you're just like you're discussing whether other human beings in the classroom deserve to be treated as equals or as humans but I think you kind of turned it on his head and said instead, well, why should the privileged group um... be privileged? Yeah, it's something that Baldwin does really well is, or I mean, well, I think I said before, you know, he's religiously devoted to blackness. He's, mm -hmm. He loves black people. And he, I think he sees a certain amount of like moral positivity in the way that like, Black people are more virtuous because of the struggles that they've had to go through. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, when the black man's mind is no longer controlled by the white man's fantasies, a new balance or what may be described as an unprecedented inequality begins to make itself felt for the white man no longer knows who he is. And I, but I think, you know, it's really useful to read this as a white person because mm -hmm. he very clearly lays out um what racism does in his eyes to racists, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, not to say that I, I want to center, oh, poor racists, but it's very important what he says, like the way that whiteness is founded on delusion. And I think that's difficult for some white people to hear because they're mm -hmm. like, well, my culture is important too. And yes, it is. Everyone's culture is important. 
But whiteness as a category is a political construct that is created in opposition to others. You know, whiteness mm-hmm. is not an ethnicity. Whiteness is not a culture. Whiteness is essentially a legal and cultural designation, right? Mm-hmm. That is weirdly founded on phenotypical characteristics. When you destabilize that, it becomes it becomes a crisis of identity for a lot of people. And I think it's one of the cruelest tricks that American history has played on us. And I mean, I say that with full awareness of my own privilege, but, you know, when you define yourself as being dominant over someone else, like, it interweaves that active inequality and that active immorality into your whole identity. And I I mean, there's no need for me to go around pretending I'm not white. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, we are sort of like admitting our allegiance or our culpability in this whole thing. Well, okay. I think one question that I have is who is Baldwin's audience? Mm -hmm. Is it black people? Is it white people? Or is it both? Or, you know, like what parts are for who? But I think that also speaks to the fact that Baldwin is talking about race while, like, as you said, he's devoted to like blackness in America, like that is his mm-hmm. religion. And he's centering the, he's centering blackness while talking about whiteness. And I think that's the biggest thing of, it's not, he's like, I'm here to make white mm-hmm. people feel guilty. I'm here to make you sympathize for the white person. Like the book, White Fragility, it is written for white people. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't feel like it's, it, his audience was just black America, mm-hmm. but I think it's like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to sugarcoat this white people. This, if you want to get on this ride, it's going to be for real. Mm, Fair. Yeah. I love, Laura, what you said about the book as a book-length essay. Mm-hmm. Um, that's from Wikipedia. That's my story. Sure. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a really good way of looking at it. I, I've been, I think a lot about essays because I'm studying, you know, teaching writing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, something that we talk about. You know, I mean, the word essay, if you don't speak French, is from the verb essayer, uh, which mm-hmm. means to try or attempt. And um, I think we see that coming into a discussion as a, of a genre of literature uh, with Montaigne in, what, the 18th century. Um, and, it, yeah, it's like a space for figuring things out. An essay is a place, it's, it's a textual terrain where we examine our own thoughts. Mm. And I think that is why I love this book. Because it is discursive, it's going in so many different directions, but you kind of get the feeling of Baldwin working out how to frame his ideas. I always think of essays as chewing on something, you Mm -hmm. know, like Mm -hmm. you're really trying to like separate things into their their basic components and figure out what's the essence of the thing. I think that then I feel like to answer my own unanswered question then I feel like his essay is really to himself. He is just documenting these things. He's running with ideas. He's jump, you know, He's making these connections. And of course, to a certain extent, because it's also published and like he is being published by white people, there's that lens that he's putting on it. But I think first and foremost, then you can look at this essay as like to himself. It is a um, deeply personal work. Yeah. But the texture of his thought is very... Um... For real, for real. I, um, flipping through the book and I saw the part where he accidentally walks in through the white entrance of the diner Mm. and then he goes in back through the, where the black entrance is and he watches a black man eating a hamburger 
and it like the way he writes about it is just you know um Mm-hmm. If he could do that, this man just sitting and eating a hamburger, then the people on the other side of the mesh were right to be frightened. If he could do that, he could do anything. And when he walked through the mesh, there would be nothing to stop him. You know, just like, I love the way that he's able to look at this very prosaic situation. It's a guy eating a hamburger, mm-hmm. you know? And to see, like, that as an instance of courage and power. You know, like, there's a... His eye is so precise and so particular. Mm -hmm. The way that he observes details and is able to put them into a greater, like, context of meaning is Mm -hmm. really incredible. Yeah. I think that's part of the, like, intentionality that is throughout this book because it bounces between all these different scenes and, like, memories. But they are, like, curated and, like, chosen for, like, reasons like that and put into a larger context i think that is um just it just shows that he's really good at his craft Mm -hmm. i think white educators really need to engage with texts like this Mm -hmm. i mean we do talk a lot about race and equity in education coursework Um, and we read some very cool stuff um but this that's not something that you need to leave in in your um, university experience. Yeah. That's something that you have to live mm-hmm. because I don't want to sound melodramatic, but I think of education as a bit of a calling, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. something like a secular priesthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. a big factor of that for me is serving students as best as I can. And I mm-hmm. don't think that you can serve non-white students without being aware of race and without being engaged in anti-racist pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I think a big part of that is like both reading texts like this to figure out your own shit and to, to, and to bring them into your classroom, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, as a white educator, um, I think it's really important to be vocal and to take some responsibility for mm-hmm. um, anti-racist work in the classroom. Um, we are we we can take that we can take the hits easier, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, and I and I, w- I think it's also important to realize you like you don't have to take on the role and be like I will be the one to I will be the deliverer the prophet, but it's mm-hmm. like you can do your own part. You can recognize the privileges you have and the limitations you have when talking about mm-hmm. this content. And it's, you know, better than nothing. Cause one of my favorite quotes is nothing changes if nothing changes. So we already know what mm-hmm. it looks like to have schools not address this. We, and we yeah. already, we already see that. So what yeah. is the harm in mm-hmm. like changing that and seeing what happens? If you live in an unnamed Midwestern state, <laughs> such as the one I do, you uh, are legally bound not to teach critical race theory in your classroom mm-hmm. um, because of the um, grass-eating mouth breathers that live mm. in the western part of the state. But that's not to say that you're not aware of it, that you're not, you don't know what it is. Yeah. And you're not ready to interrogate the way that racism is baked into things. Yeah. Okay. So why don't we just go into takeaways and judgments? <laughs> Let's 
yeah, what were our biggest takeaways and judgments on this? I think a big takeaway is that there is a lot of value in um, reading these um, firsthand primary sources from the civil rights era. It demystifies these like big figures and like public idols that are typically taught as more of like ideas and it humanizes the civil rights leaders. And it shows that they have a lot more scope than just what they do in the civil rights era because James Baldwin, as we know, is a writer. So he talks about how he was published internationally and how he traveled internationally. So I think that it adds a lot of depth to these people and the situations they were in um, when they fought for civil rights. One thing that I would say is I think this is a very important book uh, to read because it shows us this thing, this racial moment that's been happening in the U.S. for the past few years um, is not new. You know, Mm -hmm. newsflash for anybody who didn't know that, it's not new. Um, And here's somebody who engaged with it in a particularly valuable and interesting way um, in the 1970s. like you said, Laura, this gives us a very vibrant, living um, portrait of an important time in history. And like one, the figures of the civil rights movement are often treated in, I guess, hagiographic terms. Like they're treated as saints, mm-hmm. as these, you know, impossible, impossibly virtuous figures. And to demystify that, to bring us into closer proximity to their actual lived lives is empowering because we can't reach saints, but people who tried and who had some ideas and then thought about them and changed their ideas and people who made mistakes, that's that's inspiring. That's a course that you can actually follow. I will also say that um, this book aligns in, in interesting ways with my personal aesthetic concerns, like beyond the content of the book, I love the texture of this book. I love the way that it deals with time, that it wanders through chronology. You know, he restates things a lot and always refines, you know, he's always sort of circling through these ideas and every, every new iteration of them is a little more precise or shows another, another facet of the idea at hand. I love his voice, his prose. Like, having seen film of him, I don't need an audiobook for this because I can hear his voice throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a very particular way of speaking. I mean, he's one of those very lucky persons who is able to make his spoken utterances always seem written. Yeah. You know, he must have been, he must have been a, del- a delightful dinner party guest. I just want to add also, I found that he makes a lot of references and allusions like to the Bible and to history and to lots of other other texts and stuff. And so I found that. um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a very much a book that's um, in conversation with other work, with Mm -hmm. other texts. Yeah. I thought Um, it was very grounding. um, And that, that, you know, the title is from the book of Job. Mm -hmm. And that sort of like. Aware, I mean, like he's his uh, adopted father um, was a minister, and he did some preaching as a te- late, I think, an, a late teenager himself. So that that tone of like the biblical is mm-hmm. definitely like close to home for him. My first thought was like, wow, being taught this in high school, I think that would be a lot. It would be a lot to unpack and a lot to un- uh, unearth. But mm. again, as I'm thinking about it, like. 
that is where I would want to do it in a facilitated environment where I mm-hmm. am, you know, I, of course, I would hope that I would want to listen to other people's voices, but I would kind of be forced to. No, you're right. I mean, a facilitated environment for reading texts critically. I mean, we we don't, a lot. I mean, we, the three of us, you know, we're readers and, mm-hmm. you know, I read a lot of stuff on my own. When, I, when I'm reading for myself, I read a lot of stuff that's not, maybe not garbage, but that's fairly light. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I here and there, I, I engage with something chewier, something harder. Yeah. But most people don't, you know? I mean, most people aren't going to curl up at night with Ulysses. No, no. And that's fine. I mean, we have busy lives, and it's hard being on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And so let's read some, some YA fantasy mm-hmm. or, you know, mm-hmm. a romance novel or whatever. I'm all for it. But I think that engaging with denser, more challenging texts must be done in school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, hopefully other places too, but like, yeah, this is a good spot for this. This text, like uh, compared to, for example, maybe, uh, maybe the eye of a dream speech, like in this text, um, the question is not whether people deserve certain rights or certain dignities. Mm-hmm. Like it's assumed, no, we do deserve that, but there's things in our way. Um, and like, what are those and stuff like that? I think that is where the discussion should start rather than, you know, where a lot of, right. um, like a lot of discussions down. fall into the trap of whether or not um, they should. Or people should are not. equal. Yeah, people are equal, right. and like that's very, very harmful. I feel like I have a dream is trying to convince, um, if it were aimed at white people, trying to convince them, oh, our dream of a world where everybody's equal is worth it, and like we should invest in right. that. Whereas James Baldwin's text is like, no, that's we we're we're there already. We know we deserve to be equal. It's like, but you're we in see the way. our we see our own value. The problem is with yeah. you people. It's yeah. you guys. <laughs> Um, do we want to move on to ratings? Sure. Awesome. I will start us off. So rating, we're rating it out of 10. And I am going to rate it 6 out of 10. And I will tell you the reason. And that is because really on this first round, having never engaged with this text and choosing the format that I did, it was really hard to follow the plot. So it's more a rating of like my own engagement and interaction with the text than the text itself. Of course, we're talking about it and it's like, there is a lot, there's content there and there's something to be taken. But yeah. I would give it a nine out of 10. Um, I've talked a lot about how I enjoy um, the way he has pasted together these different um, disparate like memories into a narrative. All right. I tend to like more of the um, I'll say Walden-esque writing in that, like, it spends a lot of time on ideas and stuff. The romantic era writing. Um, in the sense that, yeah, I like that he spends a lot of time on the, um, the theory and ideas that he, like, brings up um, and, like, goes into deep detail. I would say there were just parts that were, like, details that were confusing. The fr- he talked about the March on Washington because at one point he said... I, he didn't say he was there, but he said, oh, I was somewhere else. But then he said, but I also did this march in France. And then I was also on this TV show. So I was like, wait, where were you? <laughs> I'm confused. Like, um, just little details like that kept me back. But yeah, yeah. it's a very challenging. And Well, you know, and I mean, it's interesting um, to look specifically at the timelines of things. Mm-hmm. Um, where Who's he talking about early on? Um, 
one of the high school integrations in what's it, North Carolina, mm-hmm. where he sees the newspaper in France and um, feels like he has to go home. Yeah. Um, and uh, in in Eddie Glaude's book, um, he points out that um, this couldn't have happened because <laughs> mm-hmm. the the inspiring event happened after he had already left France. Yeah. So his he, his memory is not um, it's not always accurate, and yeah. I think that's I think that's fine. Yeah, I don't think it's the most like important thing, but it did make me it just gave me pause. I was like, hey, I don't think this always lines up, but you know, I'm not. James Baldwin, I don't know what he remembers. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because he's making the narrative connection, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I guess I should go into my rating. I, I'm with you. I think this is a 9 out of 10. Mm-hmm. It's pretty perfect, honestly. <laughs> um, as far as, like, the way it's mm-hmm. written. I think it's beautifully written. Um, and I think it's very important. I will definitely be returning to this book. I think it's the kind of thing that you can kind of live with for a long time. I mean, ratings are weird. I don't even know. what. Do I have a 10 out of 10 novel? Yeah, no, that's, even, I was about to ask. I was like, yeah. what is your scale? Is 10 unattainable? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, I, I think I have a couple books that I would say. Like, I would say maybe Ulysses is 10 out of 10 for me. Maybe Moby Dick. Maybe Little Big by John Crowley. There's probably a few more. Maybe, like, maybe Pride and Prejudice. The Tomes. I do. I mean, I love them. I mean, I and I kind of I think I think tens are res, are mostly reserved for for pretty good pretty good sized books. Yeah. You know, like because I think that a ten is a you got to have some room to develop things, but that probably will change. My ratings are probably based on uh, time of day and uh, the alignment yeah. of the stars as well. Of course, whether or not Mercury's in retrograde, retrograde. <laughs> Metrograde. Yeah, you're like, we can't do it, not today. Sorry, y'all. Yeah, Merc- Mercury's, in, Mercury's in metrosexual. Yeah. yeah. Oh, perfect. Uh, okay, let us transition into our book talk. Here we go. Books we would recommend based on this book. Recommendations. Right. Who's got them? Um, well, I keep talking about Begin Again by Eddie <laughs> yep. Glaude Jr. Um, mm-hmm. That is definitely a worthwhile book, especially like if you... It's a good starting place if you don't know Baldwin at all, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it moves through his life. I mean, there's biographical aspects to it. There's a lot of quotes. So it definitely gives you a good survey of that voice. Mm. And Glaude is very concerned with bringing, um, bringing Baldwin into the context of the contemporary moment. I also, um, I'm going to recommend this book that I have not, I've never managed to finish. Lovely. Um, Great. Cool. <laughs> because um, it is a very, very tough book. It's uh, The Lord of Dark Places by Hal Bennett is kind of, I would, I would describe it as kind of a, a really paranoid, bleak noir novel um, about, um, about life in black America. It is not a happy novel. The people involved in it are not nice. But it kind of like ties into that idea of Afro-pessimism that I brought up earlier. And if you want a real downer read, that might be a good way to go. <laughs> mm. Who doesn't? Um, I will go now. I am going to recommend Americans in Paris by Adam Gopnik. It is a collection of Americans who are travel writers and they go to Paris and the pieces they wrote 
in Paris, about Paris, what have you. Um, I read this for a travel writing class that I took billions of years ago. But I think it really touches on global citizenship. And of course, these black writers in Paris are talking about what it's like being black in Paris. This is not to say that Paris is devoid of any racial discourse or problems, but to see how blackness is regarded there and specifically like uh, American blackness versus other places. Laura? I would recommend Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde. That is a civil rights text that I have read. Um, I hope to add more to my uh, to my red shelf. But yeah, that one is also an anthology of essays, multiple essays, not just one long one. And she also talks about her international travels. That one, that is what stuck out to me about that book. So check it out. Nice. Three great recommendations. Yeah. Again, remember, one of them is going to be a super downer, so proceed with caution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, okay, so, but what are we currently reading, people? Tell me. Tell us. Tell the listeners. Me? I just, I'm reading nothing. I'm reading textbooks, and oh. I did, congratulations to me, I finished reading 100 Things, in, or listening to, mostly listening to, 100 Things in the year of 2021. Um, and so now that I've kind of ticked that off, I'm going back into podcasts because I was like not allowing myself to listen to podcasts mm. because I was trying to reach this goal. But now, you know, I just finished listening to, I'll tell you what I'm listening to. I'm listening to a podcast, the Flophouse podcast, which reviews um, bad movies. I'm currently reading, uh, last night I started reading A Long Pedal of the Sea by Isabel Allende. I have been in a reading slump, um, which... I feel, I feel like every other episode, I'm like, oh, I'm going to reading slip again, guys. But this one's been pretty long. And by pretty long, I mean, like, eight days. Um, Dang. But uh, in that time, I was still reading. I was reading Hench by Natalie Zena Walshots mm-hmm. um, for a book club. So that's a mandated reading. The other thing I'm currently reading is um, the Titans comics, DC Comics, the 2016 run. Uh, yeah, make my way through that. I've read part of it before. Just rereading it. It was only ran from 2016 to 2019. And that's so sad but kept it succinct yeah there's also i mean uh superhero team comics are not super sustainable you know they got their own lives to live yeah i mean i'm i i'm in and out with with x books and i like the soap opera aspects of them um and i i'm a big fan of certain eras of justice league Mm -hmm. um because i like team interactions yeah but yeah it's and Justice League is uh, with JLI apart uh, aside, the rest of the Justice League is largely about punching. Yeah, and punching is great. I mean, I love punching. Mm-hmm. I mean, not not personally. I'm not a per- I'm not a puncher. Yeah, but uh, you know, um, I am also a student and am largely reading mostly student stuff. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. a, a current a current um, book on my docket is uh, What Is English by Peter Elbow, which is a record of. Uh, an important, um, what is it, the Coalition of English Teachers or something um, conference in the early 80s. Oh, um, it's fascinating stuff, um, but it is not um, not super exciting or interesting to everyone. Yeah. Um, I keep trying to engage with um, Stephen Graham Jones' um, Only Good Indian, which is a recent very popular horror uh, book. Um, I like to read the horror a lot. Um, that has uh, That is written... Features mostly native uh, characters, and it's very good. But it is 
there's just not a whole lot of room in my world. So otherwise, it's just been comics because I can I can grind through, you know, a couple of volumes in an hour or two and not feel too bad about wasting my time. That's um, fair. Right now, I've been rereading um, Matt Fraction's run on Hawkeye, which I think is some of the best uh, superhero writing of the past few decades. The art is very elegant, and it's very sort of ground-level superhero stuff, you know, Hawkeye not having any powers, and just his kind of, um, his adventures uh, owning an apartment building in um, in New York. It's beautifully drawn, it's very funny, and, you know, I kind of, I feel like Jeremy Renner has caused damage to the character in his uh, <laughs> oh off-screen antics. Oh my you know, it makes me sad because I really like the Hawkeye in those books. He's tarnished the good that name. Was, it really has. He really has. Jeremy Renner, you suck. Oh my gosh. Hottest take. Hottest take of <laughs> the episode. <laughs> Jeremy Renner seems publicly to be an asshole. And um, I don't actually love the way that he acts either. Wow. So bad on Alrighty. all accounts. Bad human, bad act. No, just kidding. Yeah, bad, hu- bad human, bad actor. I don't keep up with the things. The only thing I know about Jeremy Renner is he used to be a makeup artist, and so I guess at one point that was humanizing for him, but it turns out if he's an a-hole, regardless Doesn't of matter. him being a makeup artist, he can make up all he wants in the past, but he's an asshole now, and that's what we care about. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, yeah, I mean, he is a human, but he's an asshole human. Yeah, yeah. damn. <laughs> Hey guys, uh, we're recording this at a later time uh, due to time crunches. Um, we had to release Chadwick and record at another time. So the reason why Chadwick isn't as vocal is we're not silencing him. Uh, he's just not here. He's just not at the table to speak. Yeah. So, but I am. Don't worry. Yeah, but don't worry. We're still here. So we're still here. We're talking to each other. We're completely on the same page. <laughs> Okay, into book talk. Awesome. Great. Okay. <laughs> Great recommendation, Chadwick. <laughs> we already did recommend. And I love and I love what you were reading last. I I love what you're currently reading. Anyways, Laura. What uh what are you? Um what have I read since last time you may wonder? Um I will tell you. I do. Since our last recording session, I have read The Kingdom of Copper by S.A. Chakraborty. Um, and The Empire of Gold by S.A. Chakraborty. So those are the second two books in the David Bad trilogy. Um, I will come back to that. I've read The Atlas Six by Olive Blake. Uh, I put I threw in here. Um, I w- I've gotten back into reading comics. I read DC Comics because I was in a reading slump and I wanted to trick my brain into reading. So I was like, "These isn't this isn't reading, brain. These are pictures. Uh, so I put in here Batman, Night of the Monster Men, and Nightwing, the Rebirth Deluxe Edition book one just so i could just so i could add it to the book count because i was like listen these are like full-length graphic novels i'm gonna have them count towards my final uh year-end reading challenge heck yeah um and i had to flex obviously (laughs) yeah all right what about you you alora what did have you read since Um, last time Well, like I said, I reached my goal of reading listening to 100 things so i can tell you which book is the one that sent me over the hill. Oh, please. But I'll just please start do. off by telling you. I was I listened to The Farm by Joanne Ramos. I um, listened to The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan. Oh. Coraline by Neil Gaiman. 
uh, Children's Bible by Lydia Millet, and Hench by Natalie Zena Walshots or Walscots or something. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, and then for my classes, I counted reading the plays that we had to read because, yeah, I'm like anything counts. Anything counts is if I have to use my eyeballs, you bet it counts. Mm-hmm. Stop signs counts. <laughs> Street signs counts. Um, hours of operation for a business counts. No parking signs um, counts. Um, I read The Good Person of Szechuan, Sesh- I don't know, by Bertolt Brecht. Um, Death and the King's Horseman by Wole Soyinka. And then I, th- this is the book that sent me over my, oh, like to the one, to the this trickle got you to the finish line. Yeah. Uh, the Theory and Analysis of Drama by Manfred Pfister. And this was a textbook that I had to read for class. And let me tell you, it made me work to get to this finish line because I had like, a, a, for the reading, we were assigned 100 pages. And I was like, I had read maybe like 40 of them. I had 60 left. And I was like, let's just knock this out in one night. Biggest mistake of my fucking life. <laughs> it took all night. I was like, because it's oh such goodness. dense text. I would, I would not recommend this book. This book fucking sucked. But it is what gave me, gave, got me the triple didge. Mm. Uh, and then after that, I've also read Theater of the Unimpressed by Jordan Tannehill. I would recommend that one. And then um, Hamlet by Maggie O'Farrell, which is a retelling, kind of prequel of the play Hamlet by Shakespeare. It's not canon. Right, right. No. (laughs) And it's also spelled differently, but it's pronounced the same. So, you know, how Hamlet is spelled. And then this book is H-A-M-N-E-T. And there's this whole thing in the beginning how it's like, oh, it's still the same though. And you're like, all right. I would recommend the whole David Bad trilogy. Um, The first one is City of Brass. It's, uh, well, I've talked about this before. I love gin and genie literature. Uh, it's a pretty mm-hmm. good political fantasy. I will admit, I did not get the politics all the way 100% of the time, but it was still fun, and it was really cool, and a great conclusion. Uh, very well, I think a well-structured trilogy. This is a side note. I think trilogies can be yes. overdone, and I don't think people understand how to use them in an effective way. I think that anything that is more than a standalone book scares me because it requires... A certain it requires more commitment yeah. than just a standalone. Yeah. So the fact that you read all these like trilogies or series or whatever, I'm like, good for you. If I am like legit, if I'm on Goodreads or whatever, and I'm looking at books to add to my want to yeah. read show, if I see like book number one of blah blah blah, I'm like, fuck that. I'm not gonna. Yeah. You, I can't commit. Even though there are plenty of books that are also part of series, but standalones like Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe mm-hmm. is like the perfect example. Like nobody knows that that's actually part of a whole series, and no one gives a shit. Yeah. But if I see that it's, like, part of a thing, because then I also have the compulsion to, like, finish it, Mm -hmm. but no. I think, yeah, it's, they are daunting. And there's also a risk involved, because if you read the first book and don't like it, then you you have the risk of, like, saying, well, then I'll always be unsatisfied, since I don't know how the rest of the story ends. And you're like, well, how do I know if I don't like it if I don't have the complete story? But it's also like, but it was just so awful that I'm not going to put myself in that. (laughs) um, Yeah, there's always a risk, there's a risk involved. Um, but also, so my thing about trilogies is that, like, sometimes I don't think people understand, like, and I'm not, you know me, I'm not a scholar, but that, like, each book should be just as interesting <laughs> as, like, the other books. And so many trilogies have a second book that is so yeah. boring. And, like, nothing, yeah. there's no rising action. Like, the stakes might get a little higher, but, like, you're really back where you started at the beginning. 
Like, and then you just go into the third one. Anyway, but this is not that. It is not. Do you have anything to say about that, Chadwick? <laughs> I'm sorry. I think it's just so funny that we're just going to pretend that he's here. Just because, like, do you really believe he's been so vocal for, like, the first half of it? And then we're talking about, like, oh, you know, like, trilogies. I really like him. Yeah. And he's just not going to say a fucking thing. <laughs> he has no thoughts. Head empty. <laughs> he's head empty about this. He's discussion. not even, yeah, he's not even, like, oh, I disagree with you. He's like, I. He's so, he's so scholarly and so on the ball with all of his research <laughs> on the first, on this book about critical race theory. <laughs> it has nothing to say After about that, nothing. He even had a hot take about Jeremy Renner, but on trilogies, uh-huh. nothing. Not a single oh thought. Um, but I, just to conclude the thought, but I think I like that there's a bit more prevalence of duologies recently, and I like that. I like that people are not afraid to just cut it off when you're done. <laughs> like, they're like, you know what? I don't need to waste these pages no. and my words and these thoughts. And, like, I think well, that story structure succinctly. makes sense. Like, there's rising action, and you think things are resolved, but there's, like, a cliffhanger, and then... It's a false peak. Yeah, a false peak. And then in the second one, you know, the stakes are higher, you have to regroup and go to another peak, and then end it. I think that makes sense. And it just... It's what the trilogy no, wants to that's... do, but it... In two, in two. But I would not recommend it. The Atlas Six. Okay. Because listen, oh yes, Dark Academia. One, I was so I was so flummoxed because that was one was highly recommended on Book Talk. Everybody was like, it's so cool. It's a secret society. There's six people with magic who are getting invited to this secret society. Um, I said secret society multiple times today, and um, I don't. That was and a big it's seller. So cool. It's so philosophical, and it was very okay to me. Um, the characters were fine. Didn't make a lot of sense. Magic system, never explained. Uh, this whole world doesn't make sense. But there are spicy scenes. Um, so maybe that's what we're all excited about. Um, I will read the second book because I like exciting oh, and wow. interesting books. But I was pretty disappointed. It wasn't bad enough to... To keep you from reading the second. Yeah, All it was right. a solid two and a half stars. And yet you're still gonna read the second book. I guess book? Still, Damn, we'll still read dude. the second book. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know. I'm very complex. <laughs> yeah, they freaking got you. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, then let's move on into housekeeping things. Sweep, sweep. <laughs> Swip swap. Swip swap. Okay. Scoot around the corner. The corner. Well, something, something. I forgot the word. Move it to the group and we just won't stop. Don't See, stop. I was ready yes. for my high school musical audition from the get-go. <laughs> oh, thank God. Yeah. Anyway. um, If you have any thoughts about this episode, you are more than welcome to contact us via email or Twitter. Laura, spell it out. I will. Uh, for our email, please <laughs> email us at readingnotreading at gmail.com, spelled R-E-A-D-I-N-G-N-O-T-R-E-A-D-I-N-G at gmail.com. If you want to tweet us, you should add us at readnotreadpod, which is spelled R-E-A-D-N-O-T-R-E-A-D-P-O-D. And that's it. I saw your eyes. You were like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. But you got, it, you got it. You got it. It's really hard. 
I mean, that's why I have you do it every time. Yeah. Um. Also, we do have our bookshop. We recently updated it in case anyone yeah. feels like knowing what, like, I don't know. Yeah. If and you ever update, wanted we, to we, buy we books. Have lists on there so we have our general recommendations from episodes episode recommendations based on podcast books as well as our uh wish lists if anybody wants to gift us books actually people um, have gifted you books based on your wish list and i have yet to receive uh any gift from my wish list but uh head over to a bookshop it also any I don't. I don't know what it does. How we and get money? If you purchase books from and Bookshop, first of all, you do support local bookstores with said purchases. But if you use our Bookshop mm-hmm. affiliate link, you support us with your purchases too. We get commissions, and that helps us uh, fund our little podcast here and pay all of our many many employees who depend on us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lastly, we have our website, which has our back catalog. Um, head over there in the episode description notes show notes schnotes our shabotes um and yeah so that is the end of the november 2021 um book and we are heading into (laughs) december 2021 it's the end of season two get ready folks it's also the end of the year yeah, Somehow, in case you forgot. It happened. That's crazy, dude. Yeah, it's at the end of what? Um, not Capricorn. It's the end of Sagittarius season, I think. So, uh, during some of that Sagittarius season, we will be reading Charlotte's Web by E.B. White. <laughs> yeah, which is basically me. Yeah, E.B. Asian. For... Yeah, which would be my poet name if I was a poet. Sure. I don't know. I've run out of steam. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> ass- assume that future me will put in a little blurb from Chadwick yeah. saying his goodbyes. I don't know if we recorded that or not. I think we said something. Gonna... Bye, Chadwick. Bye in the future. Bye. <laughs>on like a fun note i do want to say like this was a challenging read for me but i am glad that i read it i'm glad that we have guests on and that we get to talk about the tough stuff because Mm -hmm. as we've talked about you know you have to have conversations about the tough stuff to like go somewhere with it you can't just Mm -hmm. can't keep it all up inside Mm -hmm. no yeah i was really i was really glad to have um an excuse to read this you know, because you asked me to be on the podcast some time ago. Yeah. And um, I iterated through a few different possibilities for what to read because I wanted it to be something that was going to be relevant to my life. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I wanted it to do a little double duty. You know, I wanted to read this because I wanted to read it. And I also wanted to have somebody to talk to uh, with you guys. Well, listen, yeah. uh, I demand. I, I expect that we will be listed in your syllabus when you're creating class around this. And you'll be like, heck yeah. Oh, like honors to Reading Rainbow. Help me get through <laughs> at least a We're little gonna bit. We're going to sit in this classroom together and listen to this whole podcast. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Maybe not that. But <laughs> I would like to think we played our part in discussing certain themes of it that that yeah. can be brought up. I, w- I would like to think that I represented the high schooler level of attention that might be paid. <laughs> so that's what it's going to be like when you're in a classroom. I'll be like, I think 
I forgot everything that I read. And then you'll be like, great, I know how to deal with that because I had a co-host who did that, that exact thing. But Yeah, don't you even worry. Yes. But it was a pleasure. And I'm also very happy that we got to have you on the podcast. Yeah. And also just your the, thorough, the thoroughness of your reading of this and then the perspective that you're bringing as an educator. And then also recognizing, you know, all of like all of our identities that we all hold and just despite the fact that we're none of us are black that mm-hmm. it's still a discussion that like deserves to be had yeah oh absolutely for i mean sure. it's very and, important for this to happen yeah and as a friend yeah i'm so happy that we could be part of this because you know we discuss books all the time and i'm glad we got to do it as part of this ongoing project and we we appreciate you know all of our guests but we really appreciate you know all the time um and stuff you put into this as mm-hmm. a busy master's student, person, adult with children and <laughs> things. Um, a whole actual yeah, it's, life. it means so much that yeah, you were willing to do this with us. And um, yeah, it was yeah. my pleasure. And um, you know, if you want me back next season, I'm happy to do it again. Hey, wow. wow. Is there anything you want to plug? Sign up for my class when you're you know future <laughs> high school students or. Um, for my mandated you know, education. <laughs> yeah, or, re-enlist uh, in high school and then sign up for that class. I'm going to do that. Principal at some imaginary school in the next year. Hire um, you. Hire me. Yes. Yay. Put this on your resume. All right. Will do. Have a good one, everyone.